Now, this is another messianic psalm or psalm of the Messiah. And while not all of this psalm is, uh, can be applied to Christ, much of it is quoted in the New Testament, and many things can be applied to Christ that David experienced, and both David and Christ uh, suffered various things and uh, had various things happen to them. And in that sense, it is called a psalm of the Messiah, and there's quotations in the New Testament that uh, prove this. Uh, I want us to notice in verse 1, uh, David says, Save me, O God, for the waters are come up, are come into my in unto my soul. He says, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I uh, took not away. So these things entered into David's experience as well as their symbolical or uh, prophetic, well, I should say, instead of symbolical, prophetic of, of uh, Christ. Now here we find in verse 1 and, and verses 1 through 4 an agonizing prayer. Now this, day, this prayer of David was similar to that of Jesus in Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. He says, Now is my soul sorrowful. And he prayed, and the Bible tells us in one of the Gospels, he sweat as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Hebrews 5, verse 7 tells us that he was, uh, his prayer and supplication was with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. And the Bible says he was heard in that he feared. So it was an agonizing prayer. And uh, if you'll notice it in detail, it says, Save me, O God, for waters are come in unto my soul very deeply overwhelmed. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. You know, if you're in water, you can wade around if there's a footing under you. But in deep mire or mud, it's hard to even get a footing. It's hard to move. And he says, I'm coming to deep waters, waters that would drown us. And then he says, where the floods overflow me, the overwhelming floods. And he's speaking in a spiritual sense. The floods are overwhelming his soul. He says, I am weary of my crying. My throat is dry. Have you ever become weary of crying out for help and to God? My throat is dry. Jesus did that, especially in Gethsemane and on the cross as well. And he says, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. Terrible situation, agonizing situation. And then he says, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. His, his enemies were multiplied. They were more than he could number, more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully. They would destroy him wrongfully. Remember Jesus, uh, they hated him without a cause. And he was destroyed or crucified wrongfully because they just cried out in a mob rule for his death. Wrongfully or mighty. And when mighty, wicked men get control of things, the devil has his heyday, doesn't he? Then I restored that which I took not away. David restored what he did not take away. And Jesus did something for us that was no fault of his own. And he restored unto us a salvation that he had not taken away, provided for it. Now in verse 5, I want you to notice very carefully. Here's David's confession of foolishness and sin. Notice he says, O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Now we know certainly that this this verse could not be applied to Jesus. He never had sin. 
The Bible tells us of Christ that in him was no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. He said, which of you convinceth me of sin? And he was tried and tested, and both uh, the devil and men were convinced that he was without fault. Even the demons cried out, says, We know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. They confessed that he was the Holy One of God. So this could not be applied to Jesus. And yet Jesus was made to be sin for us. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21. In a substitutionary way, he was made to be sin or to carry our sins in his own body on the tree and die for our sins. He took our sins upon himself, though he was sinless. So this verse, could, uh, as I said, could not apply to to Jesus directly, but only in the sense that I've even mentioned it, and uh, no, in no other way whatsoever. Look in verse 6. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let, uh, let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. If you notice, David here did not want his mistakes to cause others to stumble. He says, uh, let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake. Sometimes we do things that cause other people to stumble. Remember that Paul said in the book of Romans, I think it's in the second chapter, that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. He was speaking to the Jews. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. The Jews that were supposed to be living close to God and had the oracles of God and had the law and the commandments and had the special blessings and privileges, they had so lived that they caused the name of God to be blasphemed. They had, they had become so hypocritical and so ungodly in their ways when they were supposed to be the godly people and the chosen people. So that's what David did not want this to happen. He did not want his mistakes to cause others to stumble. And if we take this to heart, you and I don't want our mistakes to cause others to stumble as preachers, as Christians, and whoever. And we make mistakes, don't we? But on the other hand, we can guard against... Remember Abraham, he went down into Egypt and he told the Pharaoh or Elimelech, he said, this is my... Sarah's my sister. Well, in a sense, that was true. But he was not saying to Elimelech that this is my wife to leave her alone because she belongs to me. And he was compromising his... A marital state and condition and situation for the sake of advantage because Sarah was a beautiful woman and they all were tempted to, to date her or take her or uh, have something to do with her. And uh, Abraham was put by his actions. And, of course, he was rebuked by Elimelech, wasn't he? He said, well, we might have wanted to take her to wife. We might have wanted to take her to ourselves. And he rebuked Abraham for this. And well, so. And sometimes when you and I do wrong and do not live up according to our testimony and what we practice, preach and teach, then we deserve the rebuke that comes from the world. It's awful for... You know, if a Christian rebukes you in something, you say, well, that brother's just trying to help me to correct my life. If a preacher preaches the Word and the Holy Spirit convicts you, you can understand that. But when you have to be rebuked by a worldling, by someone out here that does not live for God, doesn't know anything about living for God, and he says you're wrong in your Christian life, that comes down pretty hard, doesn't it? And it should. 
But And David did not want this to be the case with him. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. That's verse 6. Look at verse 7. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame, shame hath covered my face. Both David and Christ suffered reproach. Remember, it said in the book of Romans concerning Christ, that the reproaches of them that reproach thee, that is, that reproach God, fell on me. In other words, Jesus took the brunt of the reproaches that were aimed at God. The reproaches of them that reproached thee, Jesus says, fell on me. And in that sense, I believe the first part of that verse says, For even Christ pleased not himself, but the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. So both David and Christ suffered reproach. And both David and Christ were not understood or appreciated by their own kin. Look at the at the next verse, verse 8. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. That's what David felt and that's what Jesus felt. Remember it says that even his brethren did not believe in him. That his brethren did not believe in him. And the Bible says further, he came unto his own, his own brethren, Israel as a nation, the people. He came unto his own and his own received him not. It's bad enough to be cast out by, by an enemy it's awful to be cast out by a friend, but isn't it really a little worse to be not even owned by your own family or none of your brethren, none that you're supposed to be real close to? And that was David's situation, and that was the Lord's situation. In verse 9 it says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. That's again about the reproach. And this one is the one that's quoted in Romans chapter uh, I think I gave you chapter 15, verse 3 a little bit ago. But uh, if you notice the per- first part of this verse, it says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. You know where this is quoted in the New Testament? When Jesus came in and cleansed the temple, He came in and cast them out. I believe it's John chapter 2. And it says that, uh, For it is written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. In other words, he was so zealous for God that he would not permit all the corruption that was going on in the, in the temple. And by the way, you and I ought to be so zealous for God and for the things of God that we weed out any and everything that's not right in the church. We should not let it come in. We should keep it what uh, the Lord would have it to be. And then in verse uh, 10, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. Both David and Jesus had great zeal for the Lord, but both David and Jesus wept and fasted. David had zeal, and Jesus had zeal. Uh, David wept and fasted, and he says, And chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach, and so did Jesus. Remember, Jesus was in the great wilderness temptation forty days and forty nights, and he was afterward in hunger. So he'd done without food forty days and forty nights. And then the devil came to him. Satan came and says, If thou be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. And he was living in a spiritual atmosphere. And he was living upon the strength he was drawing from God. And by the way, when you're tempted with the world and the flesh, and especially there was the flesh that was coming out, when you're tempted with fleshly appetites above serving God, remember there's only one thing that, that can keep you from being uh, falling into that temptation, and that's finding your strength in, 
in the things of God and satisfaction in the things of God. If you find them in the world, I mean in the flesh, then you're going to yield to that temptation. That's what the devil wanted Jesus to do. And Jesus did not do it. Later on, he wanted him to yield to the world, didn't he? He says, all these kingdoms of the world, I'll give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, well, it is written again. And the way he overcame was with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He said, it is written again. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. I can't bow down and uh, worship you. And then the other temptation, of course, was that uh, Satan misquoted the Scripture and misapplied the Scripture, and he quoted from one of the Psalms, and he said, uh, you know, if you're the Son of God, cast thyself down from the pinnacle of this temple. Cast thyself down, for He will give His angels charge concerning thee, and they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said, it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's the temptation. If you try to do something foolish, try to have a miraculous uh, uh, dependence upon God when you know that in your own mind you're doing something that's tempting God. That'd be like going out here. Did you hear about this guy where they had the bombing up there in New York of the, the railroad thing? Was it New- no, it's, no, in Paris. In Paris. And then yesterday or today... The guy throwed himself in front of the train, killed himself in the same spot. You throw yourself in front of a train or lay down on the railroad track, nothing but bad's going to happen. And I don't care how much you pray, because you're tempting God. And see, that's the wrong thing to do. That's what the devil wanted Jesus to do. And Jesus wouldn't do it. He says, I have more sense than that. And he says, and besides that, he says, I'm not living this life to tempt God. I'm going to do... And if he had been up on the temple and fallen off, the angels would have taken him up. And if you and I get in a situation where we can't help it, God is going to take care of us. But don't go out there and tempt uh, God to take care of a situation. A lot of people are doing that. And uh, nothing good comes out of it. So Jesus fasted and wept here in verse 10. Look at verse 11. I made sackcloth also my garment. Look here. Sackcloth speaks of humility. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. Both David and Jesus humbled themselves. The Bible says of Jesus that being found in fashion as a man, listen, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The sackcloth speaks of humility. And the Bible tells us, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. James says that, and Peter says that. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And that doesn't mean a, 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 a pride, a proud humility. You know, someone says, how can that be? You know how it can be? It was said of a fellow, this fellow got up and he says, I want you to read my great book, my great book on humility and how I obtained it. So, you know, he's so proud of it. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that things can get out of Calvary, can't we? We get up and like we're humble in the sight of God, and we get up with an air of egotism and, and, you know, look at me. Well, then, you know, that's a false humility, isn't it? And then verse 12, both David and Jesus were reviled. It says in verse 12, They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. They were reviled. The Bible says Christ, when he was reviled, reviled not again. But he committed himself unto him that judgeth righteously. 
Somehow when we're reviled, if we commit ourselves unto him who judgeth righteously, we'll be far better off. Let me read in the book of First Peter. There's some good exhortation there. Uh, where this is quoted is in verse First uh, uh, Peter chapter two verse um, twenty three. But let's read verse um, beginning with verse nineteen. It says, "For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrong wrongfully." Listen, this is look. This is thankworthy. You can be. This is this is what's accepted. This is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief. Suffering wrongfully. That's all right. For what glory is it if when ye are buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? What glory is that? If you're buffeted for your faults, well, you know, you have it coming. It's just like, you know, a, a child that's done wrong and they uh, have to be chastened for it. Well, they have it coming. But it says, What glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults you take it patiently? And that's what you have coming. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. If when you do well and suffer for it. See, if you're doing right, and then you have to suffer for doing right, then this is acceptable to God. And it goes on to say, uh, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow uh, his steps. That means in the way of suffering. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, here's the verse now, we quoted a little bit ago. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now then, back in Psalm 69, let's pick up with verse 13. Look at verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee. By the way, this is David's personal petition from verses 16 through 28. His personal prayer, his personal petition. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an accepted, acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. His prayer was to the right ones, first of all. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord. It was to the right one. His prayer was in the right and acceptable t- uh, time or season. In a, in a time, acceptable time, and it was for the right purpose. Notice, it was for salvation. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me, in the truth of thy salvation. He's talking about God's salvation. And then, I want you to notice the reasoning of his prayer is sound. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Pretty sound reasoning not to want to sink in the mire, isn't it? Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Certainly it's sound reasoning when we're in deep trouble to ask God for deliverance. You know, our prayer should make some sense if there's, if there's a problem and, and we bring it and state it directly to God. This is what we're praying about after all, isn't it? If you're praying for a man that's being treated for cancer, you don't pray for a, a, a new automobile or something, do you? You're praying for this. You don't pray for something else. You don't pray for physical uh, or material gain, you don't pray for something else, you pray for the man that has a problem with cancer. And uh, you and I should deliver me out of the mire. This is, uh, the reasoning of his prayer was very sound. And the need was very urgent, he says in verse 15. Look at this. Well, let's read on down through 18, because it all ties together. Verse 15. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. I tell you, that's urgent, isn't it? Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. 
Return unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Remember David prayed in Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 17, And hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. See, the need was urgent. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. It sounds a great bit of urgency here. So he says in verse 16, Hear me. Well, verse 15, Let not the water flood overflow me. In verse 16, Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Uh, Verse 17, Hide not thy face from thy servant. He says, I'm in trouble. Hear me speedily. Hurry up and hear me. I need your help now. Verse 18, Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me from, uh, deliver me because of mine enemies. And look at verse 19. It says, Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My, my adversaries are all before thee. The facts are well known to the Lord. When you have problems, God knows all about them. David says, Thou hast known my reproach and my shame. Have you ever felt like when you have things come to you that are of a, a negative uh, nature uh, like this, reproach, shame, and different things that happen in your life that no one knows about it and no one cares about it. David says, Thou hast known. And we must realize that God does know. In fact, He knows about more about we, you and I, more, knows more about us than we know about ourselves. Have you ever heard people say, well, they're going to take off time and, and find themselves? I've been looking for 68 years. And I'm still just the same me that started out with. You know, I find out that I'm a sinner. I find out that I, I love the grace of God. I know I need His forgiveness. I know God has His direction in His Word if I'll follow them. I know that all the things of God are good. And I know He's blessed me and taken care of me. And I know I've gone through troubles and trials, but He's always there and He's always known. He knows. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember, we preached on the Sunday how the priest would bear upon his shoulders and upon his breast all the names of all the uh, tribes of the children of Israel, so that they were all represented there. There were six names on each, two onyx stones on each shoulder, and there were twelve names uh, in four rows of three uh, on the breastplate of the high of the priest of the high priest, and he bore those names upon his heart and upon his shoulders forever. For a memorial, it says. So, Christ is our great high priest, and we are in memory upon his heart. He knows about our needs, and we're we're in memory upon his shoulders because he knows about the strength we need and about our weakness, doesn't he? And so, the psalmist says, Thou hast known my reproach and my shame. He knows about the negative things, and my dishonor, mine adversaries are all before thee. God knows about your enemies. You don't have to tell them, well, this is my enemy, and that is my enemy, and this is another. He knows which ones they are. In fact, some of them that try to draw you away from God may be more of an enemy than you realize. Anyone that tries to separate you from God and draw you away from God is not doing you any good. Then, it says in verse 20, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Human nature can only stand so much. Sometimes our hearts become broken, and our spirit becomes broken. 
That's why all through the New Testament, Paul says, let all things be done unto edification. We're not supposed to tear brethren down and tear people down. We're supposed to be in building them up. It's our business to build them up in the faith. Paul says that you may be built up in the faith, that you may have an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Acts chapter 20, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, you read the book of Ephesians and in the Corinthians, especially when it's talking about the gifts that we have. It says, let all things be done unto edification. Speak unto men unto edification. Preaching unto edification. And by the way, that's in his uh, message against uh, the use of tongues. He says you need to use things to edification, to building up so that men can understand the plain and clear preaching of God's Word and what it says. But if you speak where they can't understand it, it's not going to help them to be edified. And here, the sufferings and trials of David become parallel with those of Jesus. Because if you'll remember, Jesus was human too. Though He was God manifest in the flesh, the Bible says that He was wearied when He sat thus on the well that he was thirsty. The Bible tells us that he had need to go down on the bottom of the ship and, uh, and go to sleep. And while he was asleep on a pillow, the winds and the waves arose and they went down and they woke him up. Well, he had need of bodily rest, physical rest. He was human. And so here's where uh, David's needs and David's experiences parallel with those of Jesus. I want you to notice something else in verse 21. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is a scripture that is quoted in the New Testament concerning Jesus and applied to Jesus. All of these things, let's try to get an overall picture before we go into this. That these things actually happened to David personally. And in David's experiences, there are many things that parallel with what happened to Jesus. And many things were so close to what happened to Jesus that the Scripture was actually fulfilled concerning Him if, that they were prophecies con, uh, concerning Christ. So the human element is not taken out and the divine element is there to affixed or added. And if we'll remember that, it'll help us a great deal. And then I want you to notice something else in verse uh, 22. It says, Let their table become a snare before them and that which should have been for their welfare... Let it become a trap. Far different. You know, David's prayer you know, was far different than that of Jesus, wasn't it? David prayed for revenge upon his enemies, and Jesus prayed for forgiveness. So you can see that there is a difference, even though this is a, a psalm of the Messiah, in the respects that we tried to point out to you. You can see that there's a great deal of difference between David and Jesus. You and I might pray for revenge, like David did, upon our enemies, But Jesus says, pray for your enemies. In fact, on the cross, he said what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. And he was not only talking about the mob and the crowd that was instrumental in crying for his blood and the soldiers that had to perform the execution and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders that were so opposed to him and Herod and Pilate, and all of them. He said, Father, and for the Jews in general that had rejected him, and for the Gentiles who reject him, in fact, for you and I. So his prayer reached, it had a wide scope, didn't it? When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, 
I think that any one of us could have been recognized in that crowd. And we could have been there, whether we wanted to be there or not. And for some unknown reason, be persuaded to do the wrong thing in the time of uh, seeming crisis or a time of high emotion. And usually, in a state of high emotional uh, uncontrollableness, we do wrong things. It doesn't hurt to stop and think about what you're going to do once in a while. Someone said, I just wanted to give them an answer. Well, why didn't you just wait a while and maybe give them the right answer? You know, in, in the First Corinthians, and by the way, it's in the same parallel passage concerning edifying the, those that you speak to and preach the Word to plainly, in the same passage, it says that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The spirits of the prophets. Those that get up to speak, the Holy Spirit's gifts to you are never so uncontrollable that you cannot con- that you do not have a way to keep them in subjection to what you say and do. Someone says, I just lost complete control and I just got so full of the Spirit I was just saying things I didn't know. Well, maybe you were too full of it. If you know what I mean. Maybe you needed to be able to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And then it would be Holy Spirit-led instead of emotionally stirred up. And so there is such a thing as having things under control. And uh, so when we think of uh, David praying for revenge, you and I need to remember that Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not uh, what they do. While God's mercy is great and has been extended to us for Christ's sake, yet when His mercy is rejected, there is nothing but wrath for those that are impenitent and that will not return to Him. And these things will happen to those that fail to turn to God, but Christ's prayer was not in that direction. If you'll notice, it says in verse 23, Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. As I said, this was David's prayer of indignation uh, upon uh, his enemies. And we know that it's bound to come when people reject the things of God. And yet Christ's prayer was that they would repent. The Bible says that God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's Christ's will, God's will, that people repent and not have to have His wrath to come as will ultimately come. Look at the next verse now. It says... Uh, verse uh, 25. Let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents. Notice, this is a scripture that is applied to Judas in a sense. Remember in Acts, in the book of John 2, in Acts especially, the habitation be desolate and his bishopric or office let no one take, let another man take rather. And so, as far as Judas was concerned, this was partially quoted concerning him. Let their habitation be desolate. You read it over in Acts, I believe it's chapter 1, verse 20 maybe. Uh, In verse 26 it says, For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. This is still a continuation of David's prayer of vengeance and revenge upon his enemies. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Some people suppose that they are in the book of the living or in the Lamb's book of life or in God's book whose names are not found on the register. 
you read back in the book of Ezra, there came a great many of people and priests and people of Israel, and they sought their name among the register, and it was not to be found. It be a terrible thing someday stand before God and seek your name among the register, and it not be found. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, when the wicked dead stand before God, that they'll seek that their names are not found written in the book of life, Lamb's book of life. They're not found written there. And this is an indication that they're the wicked dead because had their names been found written there, they would have been God's people and they wouldn't have even come to that place. They would have already gone through a thousand-year reign of peace and righteousness with the Lord having come back from heaven in Revelation 19. They would already be enjoying that. But the wicked dead that are resurrected... The proof of the fact that they deserve the judgment that is meted out in Revelation chapter 20, that great white throne judgment, is that their name is not found written. It says in verse uh, 29, But I am poor and sorrowful. Now David turns from prayer to praise, and he starts out with the fact that he's poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me on high. He, first of all, is poor and sorrowful. And that, that humility leads to praise. Let thy salvation, O God, set me on high. You have humility precedes praise. Poor and sorrowful. Remember Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's sorrowful. And poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So this one thing comes before the other. And humility precedes praise. Look at verse 30, the method of praise. It says, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. I believe it's Colossians chapter 3, is it? Colossians chapter 3. It says in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So the method of praise, notice, is song. In verse 31, This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that hath horns and hoofs, better than sacrifices that can be offered. It's better than any of that. In verse 32, The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. The results of proper praise. What is the result? The humble shall see this and be glad. And your heart shall live that seek God. So the whole lesson is that we need to humble ourselves and, and uh, God will give us the joy or gladness and, and our heart shall live that seek God. Turn to God in faith and in humility. In verse 33, For the Lord heareth the poor and despises not his prisoners. Who is qualified to praise the Lord? The Lord heareth the poor. Verse 34 says, Let the heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. How can the heaven and how can the earth and the seas and everything that moves praise God? We might say, well, those things, those moving creatures can praise God. But what about heaven and earth? God sometimes calls heaven and earth to witness. And, and He said in some places that if we would be quiet, even the hills, even uh, the mountains, even... Uh, the whole earth would cry out in praise. And so it, it all is spoken of as if it could utter a voice of praise 
though we know that many of the things are stationary. And then we find in verse 35, For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. You have a call for universal praise in verse 34. Let heaven and earth praise him. In verse 35 and 36 tells us that this is a prophecy of a future home for all of God's people. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. God is going to build Zion. It's going to be a heavenly Zion. And not only for Israel, it says in verse 35, will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and have in possession. But the seed also of his servants shall inherit it. And they that love his name, that would be all Jews and Gentiles, everybody that is a child of God, shall dwell, dwell therein. There is a city that we shall all enjoy in the future. Remember it says in Hebrews chapter 12, you're not coming to that mount that cannot be touched with, that's on, with smoke and fire. And that if a beast so much as touched the mountain, he would be thrust through with a dart. And so much so that the people of God, they stood uh, back and said, Let not God speak to us any more. And they stood afar off in the book of Exodus when that mountain was on fire. But he says, You're coming to Mount Zion, the city of the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to all the saints of God that, uh, whose names are written in heaven, to the church of the first, firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And so we're really coming to that we have come to that in a spiritual way, but we're coming to that in a literal way someday when uh, the Lord comes, when the dead in Christ shall rise and living believers shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be caught up together to be with the Lord forever and we shall come back to this earth. Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, we shall live and reign, rule and reign with Christ a thousand years. And then after that, the, a whole eternity from then on, we don't know. It's just on and on and on. There's no end to the blessings that be ours. This life is not all. Most of us that have loved ones that have gone on one of these days, you know why we cry and sorrow so? We think we'll never see them again. But when we can comfort our hearts knowing that the Bible teaches that the dead in Christ are going to rise and we're going to be changed and we're going to be reunited, they shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall they ever be, we, we ever be with the Lord. There's going to be a day that that's going to happen. I find people that, you know, they question how all this could be. If you see these, uh, this uh, outer space program and all the things that man can do, sending uh, things up there in the air to circle the globe and into outer space and wherever they go and build, build things up in space, and now they've one little old thing that's going to cause them not to be able to do it, a little O-ring. They're not going to be able to send that up there. Well, God doesn't have any problems like that. He can do it all. And uh, so he, he can send the city down from heaven. He can take us up to heaven. And he can bring us back down to this earth when he gets ready with no problem. The Bible says, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself.